Hello, and thank you for tuning in to The Green Majority from CIUT in Toronto, or on a beloved radio syndicate partner across this... And it is a glorious early spring day in Hogtown. We are uh, Lauren Elizabeth Corlatour in Ottawa currently, Stephen Christian Irwin Hostetter, and David Franklin Irwin Hostetter. And Stephen Christian Irwin Hostetter is going to be interviewing Andre Forsyth, uh, founder of the School for Climate in Toronto, and Amir Jindali in New York, who is an environmental futurist. And we'll be conducting some interviews for us in New York. Financial capitalism is the separation of money-making from the production of material goods. It's making money with money, theoretically untethered from any material concern. It had become the driving force behind our global economy by the end of the 20th century. This started in the 70s and 80s, following the deregulation of private bankers and financiers. Giannis Varoufakis argues that in spite of its absurdity, its injustice, and its atrocities, there was a time when it was able to create decent jobs in various places around the world. But its ability to do this, and therefore its viability as a system, simply disappeared in 2008. Governments and central banks came together to keep the system on life support, but it never actually recovered. And we have therefore been pouring money into banks and corporations for over a decade, to no real material purpose. As Varoufakis puts it, and as Celine used to say a lot on this show, we created a system of socialist solidarity for the wealthy and austerity for everyone else. The money that was poured into banks was not invested in anything that benefited regular people, Varoufakis argues, because the people in charge of the money saw that regular people could not be trusted with loans because they had become poor because of government austerity. The money was therefore invested in large corporations, who did not use it to hire more people to make more stuff, because they saw that people would not be able to afford to buy their new products. Corporations, therefore, used the money to buy back their own shares, which makes their share price rise artificially, which makes their company look better on the financial markets. Because executive bonuses are tied to their company's share price, when executives decide to buy back their own company's shares, it also brings them huge bonuses. All this money, therefore, made a lot of companies look like they were doing well, even though they weren't. We thereby built a much larger bubble than the one that burst in 2008. When COVID-19 hit last year, the economic system was exposed for what it was, powerless to help regular people. Paradoxically, there has been no stock market crash. Stock markets are hitting record highs. Large corporations and the rich are profiting hugely, while almost everyone else is getting poorer. Stock prices have soared, even though economies have tanked. 
there is now no longer any logical connection between what happens on the stock market and what happens in the actual economy. As Varoufakis put it back in August, quote, What we're living through now is not your typical capitalist disregard for human needs. Capitalism is now in a new, strange, weird, degenerate phase. Socialism for the very, very few, courtesy of the central banks and governments catering to the needs of a tiny oligarchy, and stringent austerity coupled with cruel competition in an environment of industrial and perhaps technologically advanced feudalism for almost everyone else. All of this is important for the climate movement because it describes the system in which we seek change. It is convoluted, illogical, precarious, and causing poverty and resentment around the world. Corporate systems are still in control, but they're becoming increasingly divorced from average people. Big pharmaceutical companies are trying to punish countries that want to make cheap COVID-19 vaccines and are planning to raise prices on those vaccines as soon as we are no longer officially in a pandemic. Trump's old lawyer Sidney Powell, who helped inflame conspiracy nuts by building the lie that the election was stolen, leading people on with phantom evidence of voter fraud that she kept saying she was about to release, was sued by a company that makes voting machines, and now she has filed her defense in which her lawyers argue that no reasonable person could have possibly believed what she was saying. The white supremacists and conspiracy nuts who teamed together under the lie of voter fraud are now apparently attacking cell towers to try to create chaos in the United States. The madness is being kicked up by the contradictions of our global system. Governments have been empowered by the pandemic, but this will not necessarily increase democracy. Varoufakis argues that we are already developing a post-capitalist society, but it is a question of whether it will be centered around cloistered communities of hermetically sealed wealthy people or rational human solidarity. He prescribes a global Green New Deal, but also the elimination of private commercial banks as well as the stock market. Each person should be given a free bank account from the central bank, and each person in a company should be given one share and one vote for as long as they work there. These are obviously just a couple of briefly stated ideas. In the meantime, we need to continue building a progressive solidarity network that can organize internationally in support of workers around the world. I'll just end by quoting Yannick Oswald writing for The Ecologist on the link between inequality and climate change. Oswald writes, quote, If the world as a whole was radically more egalitarian, with lower income inequality than even Scandinavian countries, our research predicts that global energy demand in transport would fall by roughly 30%, as wealthy people would fly less, drive fewer cars, and less often, and perhaps have fewer of those yachts. The flip side is an increase in residential energy use, which would rise by 21% as more people would secure adequate shelter, food, and heating or cooling. This shift is important because luxury consumption, such as aviation and yachts, is often hard to decarbonize. The best solution is simply to reduce the demand in those sectors. In contrast, 
retrofitting houses is often cheap and could be done today. Most countries today have high income inequality, and rich households almost universally consume more private transport and luxury items than low- or middle-income households. Reducing inequality would be worth it no matter if between or within countries. Ultimately, solving the social crisis and the ecological crisis is no dilemma but a win-win situation. So a, a quick set of numbers uh, from a couple different reports that came out. The first is actually an article from Vox that shows that to this exact point about about how income inequality would would shift or, or where the bigger polluters are. The top 1% of the global income group who make $109,000 a year in U.S. money uh, of 2015 standard uh, would need about a 97% cut to have everyone get to a place where they're using the same amount of energy, uh, where it would be okay. The top 10%, which the average earning is $38,000, would, would need a 91% cut. But the bottom 50% would, who make an average of $6,000 a year. So that's an average, bottom 50% of the world's population makes an average of of uh, $6,000 a year would actually see their carbon fair share increase by 300%. And so, as we see, you know, what that highlights, as, as Davis stated, is that the onus is on the richer countries and those of us who have more to drastically cut our emissions, and even more so on the mega-rich who have even more, uh, even more, period. But I want to come back to the banks because... This idea uh, from Verifacus is interesting because in the past few months, we have definitely seen the climate movement end up at the feet of these institutions. You know, we're at a moment right now where clearly climate activists see an opening and it's in our pressuring Canadian banks to take on climate change and take it way more seriously. The a report came out, I believe it was earlier today, from the Rainforest Action Network, Uh which noted that the big five banks invested $54 billion in fossil fuels between 2016 and 2020. Sorry, the big five Canadian banks invested $545 billion in fossil fuels between 2016 and 2020. And the world's banks invested $3.8 trillion into fossil fuels since the Paris Agreement. That second number comes uh, from Oil Change International. And so Banks are funding the climate crisis, 100%. And people are beginning to wake up to that. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we chatted with the bank switch movement. Uh, well, it, we, we chatted with Climate Pledge about the bank switch movement, which is currently encouraging folks to move their money out of the major Canadian banks who are lagging behind. Lead Now is currently in a deep uh, push to highlight just how much climate destruction is being funded by the Canadian Big Five. And, you know, given the short turnaround we need, I think these strategies to go after the money make a ton of sense. But when we think of what a sustainable world looks like, I think then we need to actually zoom out and look at this, some of these suggestions that Verifacus uh, suggested and makes it, it becomes helpful. Because it's not just the banks that are the issue, you know, but the entire financial system, as we said over and over and over again. And what you've noted uh, above is very key to this. The stock market now bears almost no resemblance to the real economy. This was something that Tim Nash actually, uh, our president about a year ago, was referencing about how this, dis 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 
how we were seeing these two things sort of move away from each other, the real economy, which is like how individuals are living, and the stock market, which was booming still, even as COVID you know, got quite bad. And a part of that has to do with a huge bunch of money that the government put, pumped into the system right as this got bad in March. But corporations around the world have successfully extracted billions from governments, only to then cut step to only only to then cut staff, and increase the amount of money that they give to shareholders. And it's that piece that's the crux of the issue, that these CEOs have a legal responsibility to extract as much money as they can, and to give that money to their shareholders. And until it's addressed. I feel like we'll only ever be sort of trimming at the sharp edges of capitalism, which may dull its may, may dull its cuts slightly, but does nothing to weaken its strength as a weapon against the planet or its most vulnerable. Uh, I'll just mention that um, the Varoufakis was referring to an event that occurred in August of 2020, early August or late September, in which the British economy. Uh, dropped like 22%, the worst it ever has in its history. And similar things were happening in the States, and yet uh, stock prices were, were, were still soaring. Yeah. So his conclusion, that there is, his conclusion was that there is uh, no logical connection whatsoever anymore between the stock market and the actual economy. Conservative Party leader Aaron O'Toole said at the recent Conservative Policy Convention, quote, We are never going to win over Canadians just by relying on Justin Trudeau to continue to disappoint. He buttered his audience up like a spring potato with calls to courage and boldness, and then uh, the things he was pledging to secure. Secure jobs, secure accountability, secure mental health, secure the country, secure the economy, secure the future. He eventually demanded that his party accept the science of climate change, although his party then promptly voted not to. O'Toole wanted to add some lines to the official conservative party saying that climate change is real, the conservative party is willing to act, High-polluting businesses need to be held accountable, and we should invest in green technology, but all of this was voted down. According to the Canadian press, a pro-life group circulated a voter's guide at the convention saying that global warming alarmism was being used to justify population control and abortion. Still, O'Toole is promising that his party will have a climate plan before any election happens. All he has said so far is that he wants to focus on the seven highest emitters in the country, use carbon capture and storage, and increase the use of carbon offsets. As weak as all this sounds and is, even here we have the influence of the children, who I believe just last week started their, uh, the Fridays for Future did another global climate strike last week. Yes, last Friday, yeah. Because uh, O'Toole said that his daughter has been pressing him on climate. Our federal environment minister, Seamus O'Regan, while chastising conservatives on their inability to agree that climate change is real, recently said that market certainty 
is the only way for Canada to reach our carbon targets. He was answering a question about wooing green investment from Chevron. He suggested that we have to beckon capital with friendly policy, as if the government cannot make any major changes, as if everybody has not just seen the government shut down the entire economy because of the pandemic. As a heads up, Seamus O'Regan is uh, the Minister of Natural Resources. What did I say? Environment. Environment. Oh. Seamus O'Regan, the Minister of Natural Resources. The Environment Minister is Jonathan Wilkinson, who is, who is gloating about the Conservatives' inability to agree on climate change right now. Okay, sorry. Yeah, and I mean, like, not that I give Jonathan Wilkinson much permission to gloat, about anything, given his track record during his short tenure as, um, actually, it's not that short. He's been environment minister for over a year now. But anyway, no. Um, so circling back to uh, the action that went down at the conservative convention, this was a, this was like one of those like around the digital water cooler conversations like that went everywhere on Monday, I think. Maybe it was last week. Um, everything's blurry. My apologies, listeners. But yeah, so so to revisit it, so the Conservative Party gathered for their annual convention where they vote on um, on sort of their policy stances. And um, uh, this year was a really sort of gangbusters year for them in the sense that they had 5,000 de- 5, delegates attending when normally they're only something like 3,500. So it was a big year. It was a fun year for them. Um, and yeah, like, like David said, they heard, uh, Aaron O'Toole's call to action on climate. Um, and then also like David said, 54% of delegates proceeded to vote against expanding their party policy declaration to include, it, it was literally just a sentence they voted down. And that sentence was as simple as we recognize that climate change is real. The conservative party is willing to act like the bare minimum, the bar is on the floor. It's pathetic. Um, and F. I don't, I don't feel bad for Aaron. My, I'm not going that far, but, but at one point he was quoted in his speech as saying, I will not allow 338 candidates to defend against the lie from the liberals that we're a party of climate change deniers. We will have a plan to address climate change. It will be comprehensive and it will be serious. And I just don't see how that is physically possible when, ha- when over half of your party, when the majority of your party doesn't even want to agree in writing that climate change exists? How can you possibly offer a robust platform when, when, your, party, when your party is so anti-climate action? And, and I mean, yeah, there's something to be said that like the average conservative voter probably doesn't realize this vote happened, probably doesn't realize that the party is this anti-climate. But I would assume that the 5,000 delegates accurately reflect the, 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 the voting base for the conservatives. So if, if 54% of those 5,000 delegates doesn't want to act on climate, then I would assume that approximately 54% of conservative voters also don't want to act on climate. And, and I guess for me, this just, this doesn't bode well for a party who we know, um, given the results of the last election, need the GTA to win. And in order to win the GTA, they need demonstrable climate action and decent policy when it comes to climate. Um, And then at the same time, the conservatives uh, have to deal with new parties that are further to the right popping up that will potentially split their vote. I mean, we had the People's Party in the last election, and now there's the uh, the Maverick Party, formerly the Wexit Party, and their sort of tagline is um, is true Western Canadian representation. And um, 
and and potentially that could threaten this the conservative stronghold, the conservative party, the official conservative party that's capital C stronghold in the West. And, and like obviously this party's super fringe. I'm not saying they pose a massive existential threat to the party, but it they could steal a seat or two. And if they steal a seat or two, that could that could potentially be enough to bump the conservatives down a little bit. It, it could it could prevent them from winning. Um and then also we do have to remember that like the conservative party, again, capital C conservative party only formed in 2003 because it was in response to several years of sort of unease uh, within sort of the right wing of Canada. And it was it was a combination of, of the progressive of the progressive conservatives and the reform party slash the Canadian alliance. So it's it's. It's, it's something that we think of as an institution, and certainly um, the presence of right-wing politics in Canada is an institution, but the party itself is is less than 20 years old, so it, it could very easily be under threat um, along these ideological lines, which, it, it to me, a vote like this indicates that there is an ideological difference within the party, within those those sort of fiscal conservatives and those and those uh, that stronghold of social conservatives that we see demonstrated in in that um, in that interest group that that David referenced, uh, pro life or a, an anti choice group going around encouraging people to vote against um, this really really mild really really sort of um, th this baby step towards climate action. I can I can sort of appreciate that O'Toole is attempting to bring the party into the twenty first into the twenty first century, even in this like really painfully modest way, but. Um, it doesn't appear that it will be a successful move for him, at least. Very quickly, I'd be remiss if I didn't note my concern that the federal conservatives have so easily moved into this secure framing, which you know comes with the sort of fascistic undertones that they seem to enjoy dabbling in. Secure the country. Yeah. Secure the resources. Exactly. Um, and unfortunately, it doesn't. From the latest polling, it doesn't seem to indicate that they are succeeding in their attempts to sell the Canadian uh, populace on this either. Uh, earlier this week, uh, the lean toss-up federal model predicted that an election today would lead to Liberals winning 11 more seats, the NDP gaining six, and the, at the expense of the Conservatives losing 12. And that would leave, if that happened, that would leave the Liberals with one seat below what they needed to, to be a majority. So they'd end up basically the same position they are now, except that the Greens could prop them up alone instead of having anything else happen. Um, it was also looking at polling this week and it was um, oddly enough that like, I mean, I, I'm not a huge fan of Trudeau and people aren't necessarily like stoked for Trudeau, but whereas Trudeau and Singh are both like reasonably high up um, in terms of favorability from their own base, they both have like 79 and 81% favorability respectively. O'Toole only has like 62% of, of the conservative party voting in support of him. And somebody, and I heard maybe it might've been on the front burner podcast. They mentioned that the conservatives had had five leaders in the last couple of years, which is again, something that I hadn't really processed in my mind. It went right from Harper to, um, Oh God, who was sheer. Thank sheer. you. <laughs> I can picture first. Yes. I can picture his like white marshmallowy wet nose face, but I couldn't remember his name for the life of me. But anyway, it's like, it's, it's a party that I don't think I realized until recently is like low key and shambles. And, and what's in, in regards to climate, what I find most frustrating is that them not having a plan allows the liberals to keep pretending that their inaction is heroism. You know, like the, they literally released a shirt that said, like, we think climate change is real. And then a liberal little thing underneath. And it's like, 
Do you? Because you haven't done anything about it. Just because you have the words real in your, like, that's not, that's not action. No, no, exactly. Like it, like it does bear reminding. It's like, I know the liberals are apparently coming out with another new climate target near the end of the month, but it was like when they had the opportunity to put a new climate target at the end of last year, they put out a range and that range started 2% higher than what Harper's target was. So like, yeah, there it's, it's, it's the, it's like that whole phrase, like lesser of two evils, literally lesser of two evils. Nobody is knocking it out of the park here. So like, just because we're slogging off the conservatives doesn't mean we can be stoked about what the liberals are doing either. Obviously. I just wanted to tell you you trouble me. I know I haven't communicated greatly. I know that I blow up sometimes, but I just have a few rules. Don't forget you're dating someone with a brain of a wheel. Don't forget that I need a little bit of love sometimes. I'm asking for your love. But then you give me hell. Yeah.
Thank you. That was Poster Boy, releasing as one of their other projects, FKA Kenton, a song called Mule Brains from the EP Mule Brains that was released on Xmas 2020. Poster Boy, a mainstay, a stalwart, a throbbing heart center of this Toronto music scene. Thank you very much. All right, just to update a couple of stories we were looking at in the past couple of weeks. APTN reports that the QIA, the Kikiktani Inuit Association, has decided to directly oppose the Baffinland iron ore mine expansion in Nunavut. Locals who live near the mine blockaded the mine's airstrip earlier this year to protest the expansion, saying the existing mine had already thinned the wildlife. Baffinland says the Mary River mine must expand to become profitable. Still, the QIA is hoping that the mine will not leave if it is not allowed to expand because it employs 288 Inuit workers. A bankruptcy court uh, has ruled that the coal company Black Jewel can legally abandon mines in Kentucky, Tennessee, and Virginia without cleaning them up. Some of them can be abandoned right now, while others it will have to try to sell to other coal companies first. So that little snippet on Black Jewel is a follow-up from a really short sort of, like, not segment, we didn't do a full segment on it, but like we covered that story a couple of weeks ago. So this is us revisiting it. And, and, and with something like this, I'm, I don't understand. I need like a lawyer or somebody smarter to break it down for me. Cause I don't understand how a bankruptcy court is allowed to make a decision like this. I understand that. Yes, they have decision-making power over like what an insolvent company does and does not have to do. But like when it's something like leaving a mine abandoned that has such devastating effects, not only for like the quote unquote natural environment, but like for any people who live around that area, I, I, and the effects, um, and, and it, and it affects other people. I, I just don't understand how a, how a, how a bankruptcy court is sort of the be all end all decision maker here. Um, and I don't understand how there isn't a higher body or regular or a regulator whose ruling would, would, would veto this. Um, and something like this, I wonder, it's like, was an insolvent company being allowed to walk away from their minds made possible with Trump's EPA cuts and rolling back of those regulations? Was this always an option? Um, would love if if magically one of our listeners was an expert on uh, U.S. mining law and they were willing to email us with an explanation because the information I was able to find was baffling and confusing. Apparently, there's like three main laws that tend to govern mining in the U.S., both of minerals and of coal. There's one from 1872, which obviously doesn't mention environment at all. It's literally just like, hey, you want this land to mine in, feel free to explore it. Hit us up if you if you, if you you want to actually do the mining. Then there's the Clean Water Act, and then there's something called the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act. So like 
the Clean Water Act like allows for people getting permits to pollute. You also have to apply for a permit to clean up. So that brings like liability and that's sticky and people people tend to just not file those permits. They tend to not bother to clean up because it because it results in liability for the company. Um, so, so then in recent years, something called Good Samaritan legislation allows for support for those companies who want to clean up their mines, but they don't have the funds. So, so presumably something like a black jewel where they're insolvent, but they would still maybe want to, out of the goodness of their corporate hearts, want to clean up the fund, but, but it's a voluntary program. Good Samaritan legislation doesn't require anything of anybody necessarily. Um, and they're increasingly popular, but, but again, something that's like something that you can opt into just doesn't seem like the type of sweeping regulation that we need. Um, so yeah, I'm back to just being bummed out and depressed by this story because obviously it's an indication of, of sort of further troubles to come and just sort of is to me a really good case study in demonstrating how we, and I, I assume Canada is the same here. So I'm, I'm, we're referring to an, to an American story, but I'm assuming Canada is largely similar, but it's just an indication of how we don't have the type of sweeping regulation that we need as extractivist economies. Let's refer back to the earlier conversation about how the whole system is broken because people made millions of dollars on Black Jewel, almost certainly. The investors who invested the money early, the people who took all the dividends out of that company and made money when coal was big, all are sitting pretty and living their dream, making tons of money, like doing something else now. I w there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that many people made a lot of money on this thing and the people who have to live with the with the fact that there are now going to be just abandoned coal mines lying around are not the same people. This has to be a part of our conversations moving forward. There has to be a way to hold these people accountable and to ensure that you cannot just extract value from a place because it's like, quote unquote, gotta attract investment, which is what ironically Seamus O'Regan said that Dave referenced in the O'Toole story. And then leave once you've once you've taken all the value out of it. That's what these extractivist industries do. That's what's happening here. And the ability to then declare bankruptcy and basically wash your hands with it is terrible. Yeah, and, and I mean, I understand that like overall bankruptcy law is 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 likely a positive thing because it does allow people to walk away from their debts when they can't pay them. And I, and I don't actually inherently have a problem with that. What I have a problem with are companies who have inflicted a bunch of damage then being able to walk away from their responsibilities. And it's like the rules can't possibly be the same for somebody with student debt they can't pay and a company like Black Jewel, who, like, like you said, made probably billions off of the abuse of the land and the abuse of likely the workers who had to, who had to who had to go down into those mines and yeah there there has to be there has to be a better way there has to be something different i would love to know who's working on this because i assume there are a lot of great organizations and a lot of great people who are out there trying to reform these laws and trying to get better legislation put in place um and i would love to know how to support them apparently part of the reason black Jewel had to declare bankruptcy is because it owed 146 million dollars in taxes okay we'll see then that's that's them getting out of tax evasion by filing for bankruptcy. Like, how is that allowed? Oh, my God. If my weird uncle in Oklahoma had to go to prison for tax evasion, why don't these guys? <laughs> I'm not making that up. <laughs>
Apparently, of the 187 Kentucky mining permits that Black Jewel hopes to abandon, 150 of them had 587 outstanding environmental violations. And at one point, apparently, Black Jewel and its affiliates had racked up 30% of the state's outstanding violations total. So this one company had 30% of all the violations in Kentucky. The more I read about this company, the more I get annoyed. Well, now you see why the miners had to block them just to get their paychecks. Yeah. Thank you for listening to The Green Majority. We are entirely listener-supported, so if you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. And thank you so much to everyone who's already donating. Peace. Welcome back to the show. I'm Stephen Hostetter, and I'm here with Andre Forsyth, the founder of School for Climate, who we talked to in December about the upcoming mural project that they're embarking on, and now it has begun. Welcome back, Andre. Thank you, Stephen. It is a pleasure to be here. So, you know, I'm not going to presume that people listen to every single episode of our show while they should, but (laughs) they may not have heard when we had you back on in in December. And so I'm wondering if you can let us know uh, who you are and what's the work that you're doing. Yeah, of course. I will echo that sentiment that everyone should listen to every show. And I would go further and say on repeat, actually. But for those who, who aren't there yet, as you mentioned, my name is Andre Forsyth from the School for Climate. And what we're essentially doing is combining public mural art and climate solutions as a means to help kind of inform and mobilize communities around climate solutions that are relevant to them. So we're trying to bring that messaging into the like public space while also at the same time bringing some life into our very gray city. And what a perfect time to do that as we inch our way so slowly out of this pandemic. So how are you doing this? You now have two murals up. Can you tell us about them and what you're up to? Yes. So we're very happy to have had two murals up in such quick time. Our first one took place just after we last spoke, which was at CSI Spadina. And the primary messaging through there was uh, the relationship between planetary health and personal health that we thought was very relevant to be our first one, considering the our current circumstances you just alluded to. And so obviously making the link between if we want to have a strong personal health, that's obviously contingent on having a strong and healthy planet. And then on top of that, being at CSI Spadina, who were incredible to be the first location that we we launched the first mural, it was very important to then highlight the fact that the commitment to planting trees is a fundamental part of restoring our, our planetary health, especially in Canada, given what we're doing to our forests here. And so one of the organizations that helped inspire that, that comes out of, that's being incubated in climate ventures is Flash Forest. And their, their technology 
for uh, reforesting and afforestation and their growth that wouldn't be possible without the incubation of CSS Banana. So that we took inspiration from them and from the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment, kind of pulled that together. And, and then given both of their relationships with Spadina, um, had it on Seaside Spadina. So that's up fully. We got that up in December. A piece of it will come down by the 31st of this month. So if people are out and about, which I know is rare these days, I would encourage, if you can, go see it. It's really beautiful. We've gotten wonderful feedback on it. The artist, uh, Jessica Gorlicki, is a Canadian artist. She's very well known in the, in the city. So we were very fortunate to have her bless this first mural with, with her talents. Awesome. And then your second, within the second month, which is you know quite impressive given your speed of growth. Yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you. We do feel quite impressive, Stefan. No. <laughs> so, uh, no. So our, our second one was in, in Kensington Market, which launched in February. And the theme around this one was environmental justice. I was very important for us for that to be the next one that we did. All of our, our work is meant to be reflective of the community that the pieces are going up in. And to set the kind of mood in Toronto right now, like we know that Bill C-230 was being focused and, and up for whether it would be passed, which it did, it which took place today. So I want to have a small clap for that. And so highlighting the topic of environmental justice was very important for us. And with the Bill C-230 allows for us to, and finally do the work in Canada of attaching what environmental impacts there are that is race-based. And then creating the data to support the fact that, yes, environmental racism is a thing, and then allowing us to then act on it. And the, and the way that we, in, in our small part, that uh, we feel like our mural contributes to that is to kind of raise that topic to the, to the wider audience. And so that's what, I, at Poetry Jazz Cafe in Kensington, I definitely encourage you to go see that one. That one is just finished at the end of February. And it depicts Nina Simone, because Poetry Jazz Cafe is a jazz bar in Kensington. The mural, which was done by Danilo Deluxe, so uh, the same artist who did the, the Toronto sign, a uh, shout out to Danilo. It depicts Nina Simone and one of her famous quotes, calling out for artists to raise, raise to the challenge of fighting for the challenge of their times. And whereas for Nina Simone, that was obviously for civil rights, something that she sacrificed her career to make sure that she, she put her energy into. And we're making that link to now, well, what is our call to action right now? And that, that would be environmental justice. And so that's how what we have depicted there. It's beautiful. It's a very emotional experience bringing it to life. So I encourage you, if you are once either if you're able to go out now, definitely go check it out. If not, when things open up a little bit more and it's a little bit safer, please do. Yeah. So that that's where we are now in very quick succession. <laughs> Amazing. And so... So say folks, you know, hear that call from Nina Simone and want to get involved, want to support your work. You know, you are combining art and climate quite directly here in this work. How can folks get involved, support your work? Yeah, no. So specifically, well, just the environmental justice one, we're really looking for being poetry has really filled that space of helping grow local talent in, in Toronto. We would love for artists or musicians who are, are looking to get into that call can contact us or contact Sean at uh, Poetry Jazz Cafe as we try and build and see, can we, can we then leverage that location as a safe space for people who want to uh, collaborate, uh, musicians and artists, to bring their, their skill sets to this area? Definitely contact us and, and hopefully we can create some programming that then becomes live in there. Otherwise, though, you can follow us on Instagram. That is definitely where most of our stuff is. 
at the school for climate check out our website that's where we're putting our updates up there and if you're a business an artist a community a climate group who really who really think that this is a valid way to get that messaging out there please contact us we would love to work with you we approach each project differently to make sure that the messaging is on target and representative of the communities and the groups that we're working with. And if I can just send a big shout out to uh, CBTU, Plastic Free TO, and a B Initiative, who were major partners in environmental justice mural, without which that, that work couldn't have happened. So yeah, that's it in a nutshell. My attempt at a short answer. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Andre. Uh, look forward to having you back soon and have a wonderful day. Yes, you too, Stephen. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me and uh, enjoy your weekend. I am here with a exciting segment, I shall call it, because it's not every day that we get to welcome a new correspondent. So I am here with Amir Jandali, an environmental futurist and social designer uh, who is also be joining Green Majority as our New York correspondent. Welcome and so great to have you, Amir. Oh my goodness. I just love, I'm loving the sound of this already. This is awesome. Amazing. Well, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sam. Given that you will be, you know, conducting some interviews in the near future, I figured it was a useful way to get sort of, you know, g- give our listeners a chance to get acquainted with you and your work, and also to sort of get a sense of where you're coming from and mm. and how you sort of see the world. Mm. And so the first question I sort of like to ask, which is super open, how did you start getting into this work? And or what is your environmentalist origin story? Perfect. It's so beautiful. I love that question. Every time I've moderated panels, that's been the question I've been most excited to ask as well. My origin story, the setting of my origin story was in New Mexico. I'm from Las Cruces, New Mexico. For hello, everybody listening in Canada. New Mexico, I'm sure everybody knows, is a state between Arizona and Texas. And in the corner of this state is a small town called Las Cruces. It's about 20 minutes from the Texas border, another 10, 15 minutes, and you're in Mexico. So right there in the corner is where I'm from, Las Cruces. And that's where my origin story begins. And it started, it, it's, it's rare, actually, you know, that you have a clear landmark because they all kind of like all the dots. When is the beginning, you know? I've always felt like you can only tell stories backward. Yeah. And so you choose your own beginning. You choose your own beginning. Exactly. I, that's so, per, it's exactly the case. In my, in, in my case, I think I was lucky to have a very clear beginning because it was actually just a documentary that I watched that just caused me to start asking a bunch of questions. And the conditions in which this, this seed was germinated, to inform you listeners, I spent four and a half years as a professional nightclub DJ in southern New Mexico and West Texas. So I was DJing four or five nights a week 
for about four years. That was my job. And it was amazing. And I would just get home, you know, three in the morning. And oftentimes I would still have some energy and I would watch a documentary. Netflix had just come out. This was, we're talking like 2011, 2012. I had just gotten Netflix for myself. I mean, yeah. you're still three or four years ahead of most of Canada. So I think you're fine. Oh, great. Thanks. <laughs> so way ahead then. Yeah, you were early on the Netflix. We, I, my roommate, Amanda, at the time, you know, we would get home from the club and yeah, I would just like watch some documentaries. It was new. And then I just watched this one documentary about plastic bags and it was called Bag It. And, and I, I just think long story short, I just watched that. And I think I was just shocked at how it was just a thing that I thought was so normal. Even before, right before I watched the documentary, like I never thought twice about plastic bags. Never. And it was just something that, you know, we use every day, so many of them. And when I just watched this, I'm like, wow, why didn't anybody tell me about this? Why didn't the person at Walmart remind me to bring my tote bag? Why didn't, like, what, you know, like all these weird things. And so that I think is the origin story there. And that's just the moment where I felt that I started asking what is normal that shouldn't be and what shouldn't be normal that is. Right. So take us from that moment to the Amir who sits in front of us today. What happened next? Cool. Yeah, we can connect some dots here, backwards, forwards, both ways. Uh, from that moment, it was, it was really nice. It was easy. I stopped using plastic bags. That was just a, a quick thing for me. And then at the time I had a radio show and I would talk about issues. Uh, my family's originally from Syria too. So I would talk about things related to Syria on the show started talking about plastic bags on the show, that kind of thing. So it just, this snowball kind of started accumulating more and more until this new insight became a habit, which eventually became enough fuel and impetus to go to graduate school, which is how I got to New York. Came here, I got my master's in design for social innovation, which is, if you've heard of design thinking, it's uh, an evidence-based approach to problem solving. You go through a discovery phase, you learn about interview people, you learn about the system in which you're inquiring, you gather some insights, and then you just test like hell until you find something that works. Design thinking applied to social problems. That was my degree. So that's, I would say, is the next point. So first was a documentary. Next was moving to New York for grad school. And then from there, I founded the CSI. Not founded, found the CSI, where... I just met all these amazing startups. Cool. And so, so maybe this brings us to this next question, because I think it ties in some of your other work when you got to New York City, which is what's your personal theory of change? And then more specifically, and I think this is the part that connects more to sort of the next part of your story. How do you see yourself as part of this work? Yeah, I love this. So good too. And theory of change is one of the things that we learned in grad school as well. We learn about systems thinking, we learn about wicked problems. No issue in the world is really isolated from any other issue. And then as you map the system that you want to work in, you see, you identify an intervention point and define a theory of change. My theory of change, I think, can be uh, illustrated with a metaphor. Greta Thunberg always talks about how uh, we need to sound the alarm because the house is on fire. And you see the narrative around climate change following that, that mindset. And it's really important because the house is on fire and we need to sound the alarm. I think that metaphor helps me illustrate mine a little bit more. I'm not here so much to sound the alarm. I'm here to show what the, it looks like outside. If the, if the call to action is go outside, 
put, you know, it's put out the fire, go outside, stop the building from collapsing. I like to say that I'm here to show how beautiful the building is, show how wonderful the house is, see what it looks like outside. In fact, make it look so beautiful, make it look so dope that you want to run as fast as you can outside instead of being pushed out the door. Right. So that's, that's, it's all about finding the evidence of amazing solutions that are occurring today and framing those, contextualizing those as what will be normal in the future. And that just excites me. I just get so much energy about thinking about that. It's funny that the next question is what excites you, yeah. but <laughs> maybe I'll, I'll take that question one step further then, which is what is your vision of the future? You know, so if you, you've noted that you sort of see these pieces and that you're, what you want to do is to show people the future. It sounds like that's what you're, that's what excites you. So what does that future look like? What's your vision? So maybe uh, listeners have heard of these Adidas Parlay shoes, the shoes Adidas makes with partnership with this company called Parlay. They're made out of uh, ocean plastic. Have you seen those, Stephen? I've heard of them. Yeah. When I first saw those shoes, it, it just, I think it was like an ad in Times Square or something. And it just so matter of fact, it was so matter of fact that, huh, this is what's going to be normal in the future. This is what it looks like when the future meets present. And then that just sort of concept dawned on me and it just became this hashtag that I would use every time I would see something like that. Whether it's a fast food chain starting to sell veggie burgers or, or, or something like that, an airline that's choosing to cut the use of plastics. Call it a small incremental change, sure. Some might even call it greenwashing, which a lot, a lot of it unfortunately is, of course. But I, I, I see it as just a movement along a spectrum indicators of, of where we're headed because that's where demand is headed and what it looks like when the future meets present it has been this running context that is now the name of my llc um, and so thinking about that and seeing these things as indicators really excites me and when i think about the future i see a time in which um, on the surface if it's just a snapshot i see a time in which local is a norm um, you don't need to go so far away to get the things that you need. There's a concept uh, that's being tested and prototyped in many cities now, the five-minute city, growing your food locally if you can, an energy grid that is completely clean and is powered by renewables. If you do that, don't quote me on this number exactly, but about 27% of the emissions that are created, at least in the United States, will just be cut just by decarbonizing the grid. And therefore, you don't have to, if you do feel any guilt about leaving the lights on or whatever, I think we'll be safe. So I see a clean energy grid. I see a, a mixture of transportation systems from ride sharing to electric vehicles to walkability, as we said earlier, diversified food sources, agrotech and restoring soil and supporting and uplifting farmers. And the cool thing about this is since all of these problems are interconnected, we get to solve them all, which means that marginalized communities, which are the ones that, have, that are going to be impacted most by climate change, will start to see more equality. And that, that just sounds dope to me. Uh, like, it, it's awesome. You know? and, and humans can do it. We can do it. We have everything we need. Yeah, for sure. And so to bring that, that vision to, to what you'll be bringing and talking about on the show, what kind of interviews do you imagine yourself doing? I find myself surrounded by startups and entrepreneurs and people that are hungry for change and people that are just like drinking their degaff, like don't give an, you know, like they're just going for it. 
And that hunger is so inspiring. So I'm going to be talking to entrepreneurs that collectively represent a spectrum of social change uh, from people that are working on creating new markets for um, discarded timber, people that are using captured air carbon to make products, people working in solar energy, people working on agrotech. That's what we're going to be hearing from. That's who we're going to be hearing from. Great. Well, I look forward to it and looking forward to having you uh, be a part of the show. We'll be airing this at the end of, the, of this week's episode. And so I will leave you with the last word for the show. Uh, oh my goodness. Yeah. You, you have a second, take it away when you can. What's your last thought? Hi, if you're listening, chances are I love you. All right, listeners, if you have stuck with us this whole time and you've listened to the whole show, we would truly appreciate it if you would take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever it happens to be that you're listening. Rating and reviewing helps not only spread the word about the show, but it allows you to pass along to us your valuable feedback, which we promise to take into consideration going forward. Thanks so much for listening to The Green Majority. We'll see you next week. It's not easy.